Hello and welcome to the ENJ podcast. My name is Simon Carley and I'm one of the associate editors on the journal. And my job this month is to try and entice you to come along to the journal and to read some really interesting papers. Now, all the papers in the EMJ are fantastic and you should obviously read everything in the journal. You should especially read the articles on pre-hospital care, on emergency care, on resuscitation. You should read the commentaries. You should read the editorial. Honestly, it's all awesome as everything is in emergency medicine. But in particular, I wanted to highlight a couple of papers which you might want to take particular note of. And, and some of these are available free open access online so you can read them without having a subscription to the journal. We do that every month and I'd strongly recommend you do. So get into the EMJ, even if you don't have a subscription, come along and see what we're publishing. So first up is the editor's choice. The editor's choice will be available free on the website for a period of time. So what's the editor's choice this month? Well, Ellen Weber, the senior editor, has chosen a paper around crowding and the appropriateness of patients in the ED. So there is a lot of debate out there. There's a huge amount of debate about whether patients in ED are inappropriately attending. A strange term and not one I like. So lots and lots of reasons why our emergency departments are crowded, lots and lots of complex reasons. But this thing about inappropriate GP patients in the ED has dominated the debate. It certainly has in the UK where we've heard people say, what, 40% of patients in the ED don't need to be there? And in Australia, they've suggested to up to 10% of patients could be more appropriately dealt with in general practice. Other people have said, what, up to 20% in Australia? So big, big figures and, you know, enough which would make a massive difference to crowding in EDs. But where's the truth? So Harrison MacDonald looked at the case mix of patients attending EDs, GPs, walk-in centres and out-of-hours hospital telephone services. And they've looked at the case mix and to see where the differences were. And where are the differences? Well, in respiratory illness, they're more likely to go to the GPs. Seems to make sense. Injuries? Well, you're 12 times more likely to be seen in the ED. Whereas if you've got a non-traumatic MSK problem, you're probably twice as more likely to go to the GP. Again, that seems sensible. What about the big stuff? Patients with chest pain suggested in myocardial ischemia, well, they're four times more likely to go to the ED. So, What's this really telling us? Is it telling us that we have a completely inappropriate GP patient set in the ED? Well, I'm not sure this paper can tell us, but what it does do, although it's you know, a fairly small sample, it's a fairly diverse population, it does seem to tell me that patients are making good, relatively sophisticated choices. And I've said this for many, many years. So this idea that we can just reduce inappropriate attendances, I'm not so sure. Um, there's a quote from Jerry Fitzgerald that says that we're not really talking about general practice patients or ED patients we just need to think of them as patients and they need medical care and, and us, our job as doctors, well, we need to understand what those are. And if we can provide accessible, affordable and quality services that meet those needs, that's good for patients. We can't really blame the patients for not being able to do so. So really interesting thing about a fairly significant political conversation at the moment. So ED and GP patients read that. You should be able to access the full paper online. It's a great paper. You may find it useful at your next consultants meeting or your meeting with the managers. Right, next. Other end of the department, walk down to recess and let's think about sepsis. Now, sepsis is a really hot topic at the moment. Go back, what, 13 years, Manny Rivers put together the early goal-directed therapy approach to sepsis. And this has been widely used across the world. Not, not, not everywhere, but pretty widely used across the world. And then this year, we've had a number of trials published in the New England Journal of Medicine. So things like the PROCESS trial and the ARISE trial, which have challenged whether or not this approach as early goal-directed therapy is the way to go. But interesting, interesting times for sepsis. Now, there are other elements to this because... Well, 
are we all doing the same thing? So we've had this protocolized idea of EGDT, now it's being challenged. So what's actually happening? Well, Juwaji has looked at Scotland and looked at about the about two thirds of the patients, sorry, two thirds of the doctors, because they're quite important too. Two thirds of the doctors are working in ED and ICU and about how they manage sepsis. And really it's a comparison paper to find out whether or not we're all doing the same thing. Because at the centre of all of this surely is the patient. And we could really benefit from doing the same thing for the patient because they don't really care whether they're in the ED or the ICU. They just want to get better. Now, what he found, what they found was that there are differences. Real basic stuff. So what about your choice of fluid? ED consultants are generally using normal saline. The ICU consultants are generally using more balanced solutions such as Hartman's. They're even using gelifusin, which is an interesting choice. I'm not going to discuss that here, but there's not a lot of evidence for its benefit, in my opinion. Um, and again, half as many ICU consultants would put CVP lines in an intra-arterial monitoring in the ED compared with the ED consultants. And uh, there was some agreement about transfusion triggers, which probably comes back from the EGDT thing. So... Harmonization is probably the way forward here. Variability can't be good for the patients, and particularly for time-critical conditions such as sepsis, then we need to perhaps move towards a common skill set of protocols and ideas and interventions so that we can work around the patient, not necessarily around our own personal preferences. So an interesting paper there. Have a think about it. What's happening in your ED? Do you have that variability or are you aligned with the continuum of care from the ED to the ICU? Are you all thinking about the same things and doing the same things? I'm not so sure we are locally, but this is going to make me think. Right, what else? Well, let's think about basic life support. Basic life support is an interesting one, completely, uh, you know, totally important for survival in cardiac arrest. Loads of work been done over the years about how we teach BLS, and you probably have to go every year and have your BLS checked or teach on a course. And it's important. And it's important not just for us, but it's important for everybody, because if we can get BLS in the community, we're more likely to have survivors from cardiac arrest. Now, loads of work has shown that you can teach people BLS, but there's a rapid deterioration in their psychomotor skills. And so this paper by NAR this week um, has looked at whether or not we can do different methods to solve that. So looking at video-based programs with patients observing a standardised video with an instructor, and that's been done before, or doing a slightly different thing, a small group model where you give video yourself, and then that has a debriefing program with the instructor. So what they call an SGD program. And quite interestingly, they've found some benefits to the SGD program compared to the video practice whilst watching type program. Not much of a difference in non-compression skills, but definitely an improvement in compression skills. So they have some interesting thoughts about how this may influence how we go for mass instructional techniques for the community and also in healthcare professional education, because we really do need to improve the quality of BLS if we're going to get more survivors from cardiac arrest. Next, ah, there's an interesting paper around capillary refill time, something which we use a lot in paediatric practice, and increasingly actually in adult practice as well. And I've always been taught, and you've probably been taught, that two seconds is the magic number. Above two seconds is bad. Below two seconds is good. Well, if you stop and think about it, that's a bit ludicrous, um, because... Capillary refill time is a continuous variable. It can be anything from zero up to a very long time. But we've simplified it really into a categorical variable of above or below two. And actually, if you go back to the original evidence, there's, there's, it never really was described in that way. There's always been a known variability with age, with temperature, with where you're taking it, whether or not you're doing it in women, 
whether you're doing it in the elderly, the young, etc. All the, in neonates, you know, is even even weirder. But there again, neonates are generally weird, so that's not unsurprising. But capillary refill time, we've simplified it, should we? So interestingly, Morgan and colleagues have looked at capillary refill time as a categorical or as a continuous variable in about 3,000 patients. And they've pretty much shown on fairly limited data, but it's interesting that looking at mortality, if you consider capillary refill time as a categorical variable, yes or no, above or below two, doesn't really predict one or seven day mortality. But if you go back to the original definitions and, and think about how there was that variability, you do get an improvement of the score, although with fairly wide limits of agreement. So read this paper if you're using capillary refill time in your practice. It's interesting and it certainly challenges that assumption that this is a yes-no test. It clearly isn't. It, the pathophysiology doesn't make it a yes-no test. Is there any additional information we can get in here? And I think this is an opportunity for further research in an area which is probably not that complex to do the research. So there's some opportunities out there for people to develop this idea. And of course, bring that excellent paper back to the EMJ for publication. So there you go. A couple of papers which you should definitely get into this month. Visit the blog. Listen to the podcast. Go to the journal website. Get in touch. Write us in your letter respond to us on Twitter. There are a million different ways. Well, actually, I think there's about 10 if I had them up, which is probably so millions an exaggeration. But there's quite a lot of ways you can get in touch with the journal, quite a lot of ways you can get in touch with me or Alan Webber or any of the other editors. We want to hear from you. We want to make the EMJ a better place. We want you to join the conversation. Thank you for your time. Enjoy your emergency medicine.